We are a blessed church to have um, musicians that can lead us in the praise of our King. And we ought to be grateful. Was I the only one who was awakened this morning about 6 a.m. or so by the, uh, by the sirens? Yeah, thank you, officials. That was, that was really brilliant. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we get started. Father, thank you for this church. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy having brought us here. The only reason we're part of this body is because of you and through the wisdom of our Father, through the power of His Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you alone are worthy. You alone are sufficient. Father, draw us near to you. Lord, may your word speak to us. In spite of me, we welcome your spirit to be present with us, to do his good work in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting on that last, um, that last song, um, on Christ Alone, it's, it's a relatively new hymn, right? I think it was 2001 or so. Uh, and it's now the, the most played hymn, modern hymn in the world. And uh, it's interesting because um, there was a denomination, it's uh, a more liberal mainline denomination, um, asked if they could put that hymn in their new hymnal, but asked if they could change the words. And when it says that Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath, Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's wrath, they wanted to change it to saying Jesus' death on the, cross, on the cross magnified God's love. Now that seems subtle, but it really has something to, to it, it has meaning in kind of what we're talking about today, which is why on earth do we need a Savior if it's not to satisfy the wrath of God? Do you ever wonder what is the big deal? I mean, I, I kind of consider myself a fairly nice guy. And sometimes I think, you know, I'm a nice guy. I come from a nice family. We don't really hurt that many people. We're fairly decent to our neighbors. We don't. I can be uh, mean to cats sometimes. But other than that, I like dogs. Um, but, I, you know, do I really need a Savior? And we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about our need of a Savior. What is our need and how is Christ sufficient to meet that need? By no other name is man to be saved other than through the name of Christ. So we're going to be looking at a passage today. It's in, um, it's in Acts chapter 3. We're going to spend most of our time in, in Acts 4. So I'm going to summarize what happens in Acts 3. And then we'll, we'll read the first four uh, verses of chapter 4. So in Acts 3... Um, Peter, we, we've already had the, pa- the Passover, the, the pouring of the Holy Spirit on the church uh, at Pentecost. And Peter's already preached and 3,000 people have come to Christ. So God is doing significant things uh, in Jerusalem. 
In chapter 3, we have Peter uh, and John walking to the temple at the time of prayer. And as they're going to the temple, they see a man uh, who's lame, who's begging. So they would carry this man who's been lame from birth. They carry this man, put him uh, uh, in, the pa- in the path of people as they're walking to the, to the temple. Can you guys hear me all right? All right. Uh, as they're walking to the temple. And it says, um, as they're walking... Um, Peter's gaze fell on, on this man, and then uh, it says his gaze caught them. And, and, he's, and he's asking for alms, and they say, we don't have silver or gold to give you, but what we do have, we'll give you that. And he comes and he picks up his hand and he says, stand and walk. Now you can imagine that's a kind of a surprise. And it says, the man got up and is... His ankles and his legs were perfectly healed. Now his response was like would be like yours and ours, right? He was not subdued. He was not a good Presbyterian. He's probably more Pentecostal than we. But he got up and it says he starts hopping around and jumping for joy. And he clings to Peter and, and, uh, and John. And he's praising God and people start to gather because they've seen this guy day after day after day for 40 years come to the temple to beg for a bit of coins in order some change that you might have in order to buy his food for the day. His life is pretty, pretty simple. And he gets up and he's praising God. And people gather and they're amazed because they see him. And then Peter takes this opportunity to preach again. And he preaches in the name of... He said, don't look at us. We don't have anything to offer. It's Christ. It's Christ and His power and His name and faith in His name that's healed this man. And then he preaches who this Christ is. Well, that caused a little bit of an uproar. And the Sanhedrin, the temple guard, they see a ruckus and they come out and they say, Wait a second, what's going on here? And then they bring Peter and John into the temple before the leaders. And this is where we pick up. So in Acts 4, verse 1, it says, And they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard, and the the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed. So why were they greatly disturbed? Because he healed this man? No, they weren't disturbed because of that. They were disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, they had two problems with that. One is they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't really believe in a Messiah. And they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Not the Sadducees. The Pharisees did, but not the Sadducees. And so they're a little bit upset. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So you think about this. There are already 3,000 people. Jerusalem's not a huge city. Probably 40,000. During this time, the residents and people coming to visit, probably no more than forty or 50,000 people. And now we already have 3,000 who have come to Christ, and now 5,000 heads of households, the men only. So... Things are happening in Jerusalem, and it's creating kind of a stir, obviously. And so this is threatening to the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day. 
On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. So all these guys were in the same family, and they're very similar. So Annas was, uh, was not actually the... Caiaphas was the priest, and, but it's kind of like being a president. You're always president. Um, that would be the same. So he calls all of them high priests. And all who were high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power and in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And I think the ESV says in perfect health. He is the stone, speaking of Jesus. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. He's quoting from from Psalm. In verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Again, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. As we found out last week, we're talking about the five solas. Since it's Reformation, Sun, or Reformation Month, we're talking about the five solas. What, what the five principles that were the foundation for the Reformation, for our faith. And those five solas were Scripture alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. So we're focusing today on... By Christ alone. No other name. No other name by which man will be saved. So that begs the question, right? So why do we need a Savior? What's the point? If I'm not that bad, why do I need a Savior? If we're pretty if man is basically good and pretty good people. Some get out of line a few times, but most of us are pretty decent, law-abiding Republicans. You know? Amen. (laughs) Some of you on the other side of the aisle may be saying something else. Um, But we're decent people. If that's the case, then why do we need a Savior? Why do we need a Savior? What is our need? And if the need's not very great, then surely, why would Jesus have to die if the need's not that great? If it's not that big of a deal, and why can't we change in Christ alone to not that he satisfies the wrath of God, but exemplifies the love of God. But then the question asks, well, if, if it exemplifies the love of God, that doesn't sound really, that doesn't make sense. Why would he have to die in order to exemplify the love of Christ? Well, in order to understand this, we have to go back. We have to go back to what... Our need really is. And that takes us back to Genesis 3. Why is it that we need a Savior? Now, the need 
for the people there for the for the you know the obvious need for the the beggar the lame person was a bit of change and possibly a healing the need or the hope for the pharisees was perhaps i can if i strictly adhere to the law of god and all of the and all the ordinances and restrictions all 600 plus then i might be able to appease god myself or perhaps for some of us it's a job that's my hope that's my my need is to have a better job my need is to have a better spouse to have better kids have a better church have better elders what is the need well peter is referring to a much greater need than we're willing to often admit and that's where we go back to the garden that's where it all begins and if we think about and we talk about this a good bit but if we think about the garden was was created by god in order to have a relationship with man to give man purpose and meaning and to give him a mission which was to expand the garden to have dominion over all the earth and to glorify his name so that is what that was our purpose was to expand the garden glorify the name of the god, uh, name of the lord and everything would be as it should be would have great relationship with god would have right relationship with each other would have right relationship with our purpose and and with with creation itself everything was as it should and then in chapter 3 another voice enters the garden the voice of a serpent and the voice said eve god has cheated you he doesn't have your best interests at heart and if you eat your need eve is for self-reliance autonomy you can be god yourself and god is cheating you away from that so all you have to do is eat from the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then you will be like god she did that adam did that and everything was broken <coughs> think about it there was great promise great vision great relationship everything was as it should and then everything like a mean glass uh vase thrown on the floor was broken into pieces unrepairable and that's that was what happened the result of our rebellion through our parents was everything was polluted by rebellion everything nothing on earth was untouched by our rebellion nothing it permeated everything They were cast out of the garden. The curse as a result of the rebellion. They were cast out of the garden. Life would become much harder. They could things just wouldn't grow normally. There were thorns and thistles. It would be much harder. Adam would have to work hard and sweat a lot. Eve would have very great difficulty in giving birth. There would be separation from God. There'd be conflict with each other. It did, it only took one generation one generation to go from rebellion of the heart you can be god to brother killing brother within two or three generations you have men who are who are boasting on how many people they were killing we spiraled so quickly into an abyss and we go well that's not that bad are you serious it's not that bad When was the last time you had an argument with your spouse? When was the last time you yelled at your kids? When was the last time your neighbor upset you? When was the last time um 
You walked away from your job because you didn't get your way. When was the last time someone got on the rooftop and started uh, shooting randomly? Or fixing bombs to them and blowing people up? We are much worse than we think. We're so much worse than we think. The curse has permeated everything. It's ruined everything. But the grace and the mercy of God that along with the curse came a promise immediately. It didn't come much later. Immediately there was a promise. The promise in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 15 is, Eve, your seed, your, your, someone coming from your lineage, though the serpent will strike his heel, he will crush the serpent's head. There's hope. There's hope. And then he reiterates that later on with Abraham. He says, Abraham, in in Genesis 12, he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And not only that, your seed will be a blessing to all the nations. He's given a promise that from the seed of Eve, from the seed of Abraham, there'll be hope. And things won't continue as they are. That hope continued. We saw recently in, uh, in the Exodus where... He, where, he's, where God's wrath is being demonstrated among the Egyptians, and when he, in his last plague or his last blow is to the firstborn, he gives hope. And he says, For your household, my people, I want you to take a lamb. It can't be any lamb, it has to be a perfect, unblemished lamb. And I want, you to, I want you to bring it into your home. Keep it 14 days. And then I want you to slaughter it. And then I want you to pour the blood and sprinkle the blood of that lamb. And we're not talking, we're talking slaughter. It's graphic. And I want you to take and sprinkle that blood over your doorpost so that when the wrath of God passes through Egypt, you will be covered and I will pass over the hope of life, the hope of salvation. And it was so important in Exodus 12 that he says, not only do I want you to do it now, I want this to be an ordinance. I want, you to cont- I want this to be perpetual as a reminder that I will be sat- my wrath will be satisfied to the-, to the shedding of blood. And so Israel, as soon as they get into the promised land, every family... Every nation, every year, slaughter. Pour sprinkling of the blood to satisfy the wrath of God. And yet we see in Hebrews, the Hebrews says, the blood of sheep and bulls cannot satisfy the wrath of God. It's not good enough. And that was always a reminder. Though it gave them hope, it was not the solution. It was not the solution. There had to be a better way. And God began to give pictures of the promise. Not only through the Passover lamb, but He began to give other hints that things would be different. And in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 in Daniel 9, He talks about there's going to be another one, an anointed one, a chosen one, that will come and represent you and bring you hope. It will be a mediator between you and me. So there's these pictures. This isn't generated by man. Man's not the one who's, who's trying to drive this. It's God saying, 
Though you rebelled, I will provide a way. I will provide a way. But this is very, very serious. Throughout the Old Testament, Messiah's coming was not a secret. Okay? It was not a secret. It was over and over and over and over. God is telling His people, I will give you hope. The Messiah is coming. I have a chosen one, an anointed one who will come to you. In Genesis 3.15, we said before, your seed um, will be, the Messiah will come from your seed. Again, in Genesis 12, it will be a seed of Abraham and be a blessing to the nations. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, he would be a prophet like Moses to whom God would, uh, said that we had to listen to and obey. In Micah 5.2, this Messiah would be born in, in Bethlehem of Judea or Judah. In Isaiah 7, he would be born of a virgin. In 2 Samuel 7, he would have a throne, a kingdom, and a dynasty or a house starting with King David. And it will last forever. In Isaiah 9, he said he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And possess an everlasting kingdom. In Zechariah 9, he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, righteous and having salvation, coming with gentleness. In Isaiah 53, he would be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our sin and our iniquities. In Isaiah 53, 9, he would be among the wicked ones who would be buried with the rich, speaking of how he would die. In between two thieves, buried in, um, in Joseph of Arimathea's grave. In Psalm 16, he'd be resurrected from the grave and God would not allow his Holy One to suffer decay. In Daniel 7, he would come again from the clouds of heaven as the Son of Man. Micah 4.2, he would be the Son of Righteousness for all those who revere him and look for his coming again. In Zechariah 12, he is the one whom Israel will one day recognize as the one they pierced, causing bitter grief. This is why Jesus would say to the Pharisees in John 5:39, You diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These Scriptures testify of Me. You're searching for the Scripture, but you're losing Me. The Old Testament, the Scriptures are about Me. They're pointing to Me, the Messiah. In Luke 24, 27, after his resurrection, he sees to, uh, a couple of disciples along the road to Emmaus. He says this, and, the begin, and he began to explain to them. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that is why in John 1, 29, John the Baptist, when he sees him, this didn't come from John, says the Holy Spirit or God spoke to him. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So remember, back in Exodus, we're looking at it. It takes the blood to cover the rebellion. That the, that the sprinkling of blood causes death to pass over. That's very real in their minds. Every Passover meal, they would, they would take a lamb and march it in front of the crowds. Going to be slaughtered as the hope of the people. And so John the Baptist is saying to Jesus, Behold, that's your Lamb of God who takes away the sins not only of Israel, He's taken away the sins of the world in light of the promise to Abraham. 
So why is it that Jesus is the one that's qualified? Why is it that He's sufficient? Remember, it's the quality of sacrifice. You can die for your sin and be separated from God for eternity. You can't die for anyone else's. You can't even satisfy the the wrath of God in your own sin. You have to pay for it for eternity. It's because the quality of my sacrifice is not good enough for you, Zach. But there was one who was a quality sacrifice. He was unblemished. Two things had to happen for for that to be in place. One... Is it the person of Christ? It was the person of Christ, not just that he sacrificed. It was who he was that made his sacrifice valuable to you and I. He had to be fully God. In John 1, 1 1 to 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything that uh, made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those words are important. This speaks not only of who He is, He is God. And that when His sacrifice is ended, think about, for a thousand, more than a thousand years, year after year after year, priests would sacrifice the Lamb over and over and over again. The work was never done. Why? Because the Lamb wasn't good enough. And in Hebrews it says, the true Lamb of God, because He is God Himself, When he makes sacrifice, he sits at the right hand of the Father because the work is done and completed because of who he is. But he was not just fully God. That made him worthy. But he had to be fully man in order to represent us. As per the promise to Eve. In Luke 1 Thirty through thirty-five, we hear, you know, when the angel appears to Mary, and he says, "You're blessed. You're going to give birth to a son." And she says, "What do you mean? I can't give birth to a son because I'm a virgin, and I'm engaged." And he says, "I'm going to do this through the Spirit, because we know that sin passes to us through our fathers." He had to be fully God. He had to be unblemished. Therefore. He could not be from Joseph. He had to be from the Holy Spirit. So he was incarnated through Eve, the virgin, in order to be unblemished, but yet a man. In John 1.14 it says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Fully, Fully God, and yet became flesh. So He could represent us. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. 
That's a hard word. Propitiation. What does that mean? It means to satisfy. To satisfy what? To satisfy God's wrath once and for all. For you and I. Those who are covered by the blood of the true Lamb. So He is our representative. So it's not just important about the person of Christ, but it's the work of Christ. So we know that He is a pure Lamb. We know that He is the one who is holy. We know that He is unblemished. So what did He have to do? He had to be perfectly obedient. This is called active active obedience. He had to be the one who completely satisfied the law of God. He had to be the one who was perfect in every way. Who fully obeyed His Father's will. That's the only way that it could happen. He had to be unblemished, but He also had to obey and fulfill the law of God for us. In Hebrews 4.15 it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are. He felt every temptation you and I have. Hunger, disappointment, isolation, people leaving him, and yet without sin. So he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. First Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, Neither was the seat found in his mouth. So he perfectly obeyed the law in every way, both physically, actively, but in his heart. John 17 says, I've done everything that you've called me to do. I've done all the work that you've given me to do. But then he became the perfect sacrifice. This was his passive obedience. Active obedience is he fully, actively fulfilled the law. His passive obedience was him giving himself up. You remember in John, when at the Garden of Gethsemane, they hear, they're praying and sleeping, um, and they hear the ruckus of a mob coming up the road, and he goes and he says, Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am uses the same words that God speaks on Sinai. I am that I am. And he says, and they all fall down. All of them are on the ground. And then to emphasize that he's giving himself freely, he says, as they're on the ground, now who are you seeking? Jesus. He says, I am. And he gives himself to them. They don't take him. He gives himself to them. A willing lamb. Willingly giving himself without a, without a murmur, without a protest, without a word. To be, sac- to be slaughtered. Slaughtered. Like in a meat house. It is not pretty. To be beaten. To be spat upon. To be pierced. To be whipped. To be crucified. The lamb was slaughtered. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him he might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness of God. Now think about this. It says it wasn't just a physical slaughter. It wasn't just that he gave his life. What was the purpose of the Lamb? To satisfy the wrath of God. Think about this. God is a righteous, holy, pure God. He gets angry at injustice. Year after year, decade after decade, millennial after millennia, the sins of man are piled high. Murder after murder, rape after rape, war after war. The sins of man are piled high, and yet the wrath of God was stored up to be poured on man. But guess what He did? For you and I, He poured it on Christ. Every ounce of His wrath. In full. That's significant. So that when Jesus is on the cross, He says, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Because He was experiencing not only physical death and pain and torture, but the actual wrath of God, the weight of sin for every single one of us, everyone who's ever lived, was poured out on Jesus. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin so that you and I may be the righteousness of God. In Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He had to die. He had to shed. All of God's wrath had to be poured out on him to satisfy the wrath of God. But not only that, he was raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For I delivered to you the first, of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Caiaphas, or Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. And then in verse 14 he says, And if Christ has not been raised, this is why it's important, if Christ has not been raised, then you and I can't be raised. But he says in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But it's not. It's not. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all of wrath was poured out on Him. He went to the grave for you and I, taking our death on Him. But God raised Him from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now he is seated at the right hand of God. Guess what? He is no longer the Lamb. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the only one worthy to take the scroll of life and of judgment and to break the seal so that you and I can have life. It's an amazing story. An amazing epic of the love of God from the beginning of man. 
to this very day. So why is this important? That perfect sacrifice, that perfect shedding of His blood, raised from the dead, now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you and for me every single moment. Why? So that He can restore our relationship to God. So that He can make all things right. So He can restore us to God now. Begin the work of restoring us to each other now. And one day, one day, He'll restore all things as they should. We will be back in the garden better than ever. There will be no strife. There will be no hopelessness. Every single day, we will wake up to what we were meant to be in Christ. In Ephesians 1, and we'll close with this. And it's not in you, and it's not in me. He didn't start something so you and I can finish it. But in Ephesians 1, Paul begins to give us all the promises that God gives us through His Word. Blessed, he says, that in Christ, in Christ, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. In Christ, you're holy and blameless in His sight. In Christ, you're adopted as sons and daughters. In Christ, you've been redeemed and forgiven of our sins. In Christ, we have an inheritance. All that belongs to Jesus now belongs to us because of Christ, not because of us. Through the sacrifice of our Savior, God now desires to meet all of our longings. Isaiah 55 Come all who are thirsty, come by and eat, without money, without cost. Why do you why do you buy that which is why do you spend money on that which is not bread? And why do you labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and I will I will give you the richest affair. God is a generous God, He's not miserly. He's lavishly generous, recklessly generous, even to the point of giving us a son. He says, if I'm willing to give you my son, will I not give you all things? So what is your hope? What are you longing for? Are you longing for Auburn to score in the fourth quarter to win that game last night? Auburn will disappoint. Alabama won't disappoint as often as Auburn, but they will disappoint too. Is it your job? Is it your house? Is it your finances? Is it your spouse? Is it your children? All will disappoint. But Christ will never disappoint. He is sufficient. Christ alone satisfies. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time. Father, may... Our hearts be transformed by your truth. Fill us with your spirit. May you glorify and magnify your name through us. To you be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.
Let's stand. I gotta say, I was a little disappointed to find out that Neil was mean to cats. <laughs> so I'm gonna stop dropping them by there now. <laughs>
doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May His face shine upon you and give you peace. Go in peace. Thank you.